you seeking to be in nutritional ketosis and need a pain-free, inexpensive, and non-invasive way to determine whether or not you are effectively burning fat for fuel? Then get your hands on the FDA-registered Class 1 medical device called Ketonics. It's a breath analyzer you can use thousands of times to test for the presence of acetone, the primary ketone body in the breath. It's been developed by a Swedish engineer with epilepsy as an alternative to the failed urine ketone strips and the expensive blood ketone strips. Ketonics is the first and best way to test for nutritional ketosis in the breath. Plus, you'll be able to chart your readings into convenient data to customize your ketogenic diet to you. Get your hands on the Ketonics 2015 in red or blue in North America for $150 at ketonics.co or get your Ketonics in the rest of the world at ketonics.com. Real food is something the keto community can rally behind and support as we shift away from the sugary, grainy, starchy, food-like disease agents sold in grocery stores and more towards high-quality food that nourishes our bodies. That's why I love ButcherBox. Visit ButcherBox.com Jimmy and you'll get an exclusive deal on 100% grass-fed beef, organic chicken, and heritage breed pork delivered right to your door for $6.50 a meal. That includes free shipping and $10 off your order, plus a free smoked bratwurst. Butcher Box has a commitment to supplying only the very finest cuts of grass-fed and pastured meats you can find anywhere. The best and most convenient part for our busy lifestyles is they ship your box to wherever you are so you can fire up the grill and enjoy food you can believe in again. Again, it's Butcher Box. Visit butcherbox.com jimmy for this exclusive deal for my listeners. Coming up in episode 1180, Dr. Adam Hartman. Connecting and educating and making the world a more informed and healthier place. You're listening to the Live in La Vida Low Carb Show with Jimmy Moore. You've helped change so many lives and give us all the courage to take on the rest of the world. This is the longest running health podcast on the air today. You've done so much to spread the word about how diet matters. Over 1,000 episodes strong and counting. The amount of lives that you've changed at this point is incalculable. And now, here's our host and international best-selling author you're like the ll cool j of podcast jimmy moore Today's featured audio is from the 2016 On Nutritional Ketosis and Metabolic Therapeutics Conference that took place in Tampa, Florida earlier this year. Sign up now at MetabolicTherapeuticsConference.com for next year's Tampa event coming February 1st through the 4th, 2017. Um, how many people here know what epilepsy is? They really know. Okay, so, so, um, so just so that we're all starting from a level playing field, um, a seizure is a clinical symptom and or signs associated with abnormal brain activity. This affects three million people in the United States in terms of epilepsy, and that's the tendency, the propensity to have recurrent unprovoked seizures. And it's, you know, just to put this in a broader perspective, it's more than cerebral palsy, multiple sclerosis, ALS or Lou Gehrig disease, and Parkinson's disease combined. So if you think about one out of 100 people, if you go, when I'm seeing patients in clinic, I say if you think about how many people are watching the Ravens in M&T Bank Stadium you know, on, a, on a weekend, um, that's a lot of people. So um, in terms of the current treatments, the, you know, the first line of treatment is medication. 
And so this is a, a study, it was a follow-up study um, uh, using newer medications, looking at how effectively patients were treated. And so the red piece of the pie, which is limited efficacy of the drugs, and the green piece of the pie, which is never seizure-free, you're talking about 41% of patients. So that is around a million people in the, just in the United States, and it's a lot more worldwide, obviously. There is a segment of that population in whom surgery would work um, because they have an identifiable lesion that's surgically accessible, and that is their best chance at seizure freedom, but I, I'm estimating it's a pretty small, um, pretty small piece of the pie. And so the, what I was gonna show you is a video of a little child. Most people have seen you know, on TV shows, a, so-called grand mal, a generalized tonic-clonic convulsion. What this video is gonna show you is that um, this little boy has seizures where he just suddenly drops. He has something called Lennox-Gastaut syndrome. Seizures can look different ways. Some people can just stare. Um, in a really, uh, it's really a very multifaceted disease. So, you know, one question that I always felt was kind of missing in the epilepsy story is, is metabolism a reasonable target for treating epilepsy? So we know about patients who have mutations in uh, different mitochondrial genes, both nuclear and mitochondrial DNA. We know about patients who um, have been well served by the ketogenic diet, so it stands to reason that metabolism uh, may be important. However, this is a study that um, came from France, it was just published the end of um, last year, and basically what the authors showed is that metabolism changes precede epileptiform activity in this particular model. And so what I'm gonna show you is um, some tracings. These are, incre these are um, intact hippocampi that they dissected out of um, some rats. And what they showed, if you look at this little triple arrow, is that there's actually, so this is an NADH tracing, there's actually a brief increase in oxidative phosphorylation prior to the onset of the recorded field potentials. Prior to the onset, you sort of see that view exploded here. That then reverses and it changes over time. The main point is that there is a change both before during and sort of as the, as the epileptic form activity um, propagates um, and continues to fire off. And that's also sort of mirror, a mirror reflection in the oxygen consumption. They also looked at FAD activity showing that this is mitochondrial, the, the fluorescence, so they were recording these things simultaneously. So if we could get a better understanding of what's going on here, then I think we have one more piece of evidence um, indicating that metabolism uh, is a potentially targetable intervention. So the way that things generally flow in our clinic management is, um, you know, if someone has adequate seizure control with, you know, one or two medicines, um, it's a, a more convenient thing in most cases to do than a dietary therapy. If someone is a surgical candidate, and by that I just mean if I can trace my finger around something and say to the surgeon, I need you to take this scar tissue out or this tumor out, that's clearly gonna be their best shot at seizure freedom. But if they are not well served, if they have seizures coming from um, areas of the brain that are so-called eloquent cortex, where if you remove that area of the brain, you're gonna lose critical function, or if it's in multiple different places in the brain, then they have three options. One is medication changes, another is neurostimulation, and the one that we're gonna talk about today, obviously, is metabolism-based therapy. And so, um, as Zhang uh, outlined earlier today in more detail, the idea that fasting improves seizure control goes back to the time of Hippocrates. I don't know if Hippocrates himself made this observation or if it was one of his poor graduate students or postdocs who um, then had to say it in his name. Um, and the, the diet was designed to mimic fasting. Again, uh, Zhang went through this in, in a fair amount of detail this morning in terms of the history. And the basic way that the diet got its name is because uh, at the time they were able to measure ketone bodies in the urine. And so ingestion of uh, long chain and uh, fatty acids um, in the classic ketogenic diet 
then undergo fatty acid oxidation um, in the mitochondrial matrix, and that then generates the two carbon intermediates, which are converted to acetoacetate, acetone, spontaneous decarboxylation, and beta-hydroxybutyrate. Those get filtered into, um, from the kidney into the urine, and so you have the name for something. Um, and that's how, that's a little other piece of the history. In terms of clinical efficacy, um, I think it's important to remember this study. So this is uh, the folks at the Great Ormond Street Hospital in London, where they um, had a three-month waiting list for their diet, similar to what we, a lot of centers have. And so they had permission from the IRB to go ahead with putting patients directly on the ketogenic diet or randomizing to the classic control um, arm where they waited the typical three months. And then at the end, they were all put on the ketogenic diet. During that three months, they were able to um, change medications to optimize their um, to optimize their efficacy of the of the medications. And what was noted was a greater than 50% reduction in seizures in 28 patients in the diet group compared to four in the control group. Um, so that is a key clinical trial. So I'd like to shift gears a little bit before we start talking about mechanism. Talk about some definitions that I'm going to use. And some of these are a little bit controversial, but um, we're going to refer to an anti-seizure effect, meaning that something is stopping a seizure acutely. And then you've heard a discussion of anti-epileptogenic and disease-modifying effects. The anti-epileptic effect I'm going to define as halting something that halts the underlying pathological process that leads to ongoing spontaneous recurrent seizures. <clears throat> we know some of the things that happen in terms of neurotransmitters, their channels, their receptors, and circuits, but there isn't really a, a global hypothesis of how epileptogenesis comes to be. And so studying it and studying whether your intervention makes a difference is a little bit difficult to do. Disease modification, I'm going to use in the same context as anti-epileptogenic, only because we're talking about seizures, but as has been noted by, um, by our other speakers this morning, this has been applied to a number of other disease states. Um, and I don't think that you necessarily have to have cell death to make that. You can have cell dysfunction to make that point, um, <clears throat> as a number of the models have shown. And the question is, are these really all points on a spectrum? So, and I'll readily admit there's some controversy about these definitions. So I'm going to show you some data from both human and animal studies. Um, looking at the ketogenic diet. So this is just one example, and there, there are some other studies, but um, this is a study, the so-called 150 study from Hopkins. Cheryl Hemingway, John Freeman were involved in this one. And basically, they were looking at the amount of time on the diet, patients who were seizure-free and varying degree of responses. These degree of responses, by the way, are reflected in drug studies, too. That's where it comes from. So when a drug is going to trial, it's the same kind of a thing, seizure-free, greater than 90, 90, 95, and so um, and so um, 29 of these patients, so at patients who had been on more than 48 months, 20 of the 150, one was still on the diet, 20 of the 150 were seizure-free. 29 people in the study were off medications, 28 were on only one medication. And so the question is, is this disease modification? They go on the diet, they undergo the treatment, then they stop the diet, and something <coughs> happens, and that then leads to seizure control. or. An alternative explanation is that maybe the clinicians finally found the right anticonvulsant and you've managed to suppress the seizures long enough um, that there's been some change in the circuitry. So, um, oops, went the wrong way in that one. 
Okay, so there are some animal data as well. <clears throat> and so we'll look first at the rats. This is an electrical kindling model, and the basic idea is that the rats have electrodes that are implanted, and they're given a sub-threshold dose of current on a recurring basis, and then one day, all of a sudden, they start see, you start seeing abnormal electrical activity or seizures. And so that's the, the kindling idea. And so in this study uh, that was published back in 97, they were looking at after-discharge thresholds and seizure thresholds. Another study from some of the same investigators in 1999 involved canic acid kindling. And so um, the idea here was that the mice, um, is that the mice had, the rats rather, had, um, were on a ketogenic diet. They were, they were subjected to status epilepticus with canic acid. And then they were looking at spontaneous recurrent seizures. So they only had one big exposure to the canic acid. And then they were put on the diet. And you can see that the mice that were treated with the ketogenic diet had um, a, small, a lower number of total spontaneous recurrent seizures. These are behavioral seizures. They weren't recorded with the EEG. Um, and the frequency, the duration also were different. So you have some impact here chronically. But the mice have been, the rats rather, have been exposed to the diet the whole time that these measurements are being made. Here's another study um, that was published back in 2009 looking at, so this is the PTZ kindling model um, that's similar to what um, Susan just was discussing. So these are in NMRI mice and um, the basic idea here was that, again, it's a sub-threshold dose of pentylene tetrazole that's administered and the mice that were treated with the diet had um, had lower grade seizures. Again, these are behavioral seizures, not EEG recorded seizures. Fewer seizures over time. And then you have the follow-up study that Susan just presented, um, looking at what happens after you take the, mi the mice off, which is an important thing that we're gonna bring up in a minute. Here's another mouse study. This is from Tom Seafried's lab, published in 2000, looking at a model. They have something called the EL mouse, epilepsy-like mouse, and the idea here is that if you pick the mouse up, just gentle cage handling transfer from one cage to another, um, the mouse will then have a convulsion. And so here, uh, it's a seizure score, and so the, the severity um, uh, seemed to go to a pretty high level after only two weeks of handling and treatment, whereas the mice that were treated with the ketogenic diet had a uh, shift that curve to the right, so it took them longer to get that to the same uh, seizure score. It's interesting that the effect of the diet wore off over time, and um, Tom tells me that there were some uh, metabolism-based adaptations that the mice made over time, which uh, is interesting because we have some patients who clinically eventually sort of fail the diet, um, and you wonder if some of those mechanisms are similar. So just to summarize the data thus far, the human data, long-term remission in some patients, I have to say, you do see this with some medications. Um, so it's not, this is not an only diet phenomenon, but certainly it's encouraging. And then the animal models protect against seizures in some chronic animal um, models. The question is, is it, due, is it due to ongoing exposure to the diet? And um, Susan um, and Detlev have um, answered part of that question, um, looking not only at the ability of the animal to generate seizures as it gets these sub-threshold doses of the convulsant, but then the flip side is what happens when you take them off. And that's a really important piece of information. So um, thank you for presenting us. So that's one less slide for me to have to put up. So we're going to shift into the mechanism mode, um, and this is sort of how we got started on, um, on our studies. And, and there are three basic approaches. One is to consider individual diet components. Is it the low carbohydrate? Is it the high fat? Um, is it something having to do with diet consumption where you're changing multiple variables at the same time? Is it something that has to do with downstream metabolism pathways? So let's talk about um, the first item. So this is a, a diagram. I'm going to quote both Susan and Jong here. Um, 
And so these are, this, this sort of, I'm gonna enlarge some of these boxes. This is a, a reductionist approach in that you start off looking at elevated free fatty acids, reduced glucose, and I'm just gonna summarize parts of this. It turns out that if you take out uh, norepinephrine uh, neurotransmission, and as Susan's gone through already, if you take out adenosine, the diet doesn't work. And so neurotransmitter systems clearly are playing some role in this. There also was uh, work that uh, Susan discussed about KTP channels, John mentioned it as well earlier, and then um, vesicular glutamate transporters with acetoacetate having an impact, John talked about this earlier, having an impact on chloride transport in those um, vesicles. And so, uh, <clears throat> so this is a pretty complicated diagram, a lot of, a lot of wires are crossing. There are some updates um, to this and I'll discuss them briefly. John mentioned earlier the story about decanoic acid, um, and Susan mentioned the epigenetics in the adenosine model. There are some, there is a study looking at it with the ketogenic diet, and then John's study on the mitochondrial transition poor inhibition. So when I looked at this diagram, I was thinking to myself, I've seen that before. I saw it when I lived in Japan. It's the Tokyo subway diagram too. Okay, so, um, but let's untangle some of this. So some of the newer data, decanoic acid is one of the medium chain triglycerides, as has been mentioned earlier. You can do the long chain fatty acid version, you can do the medium chain triglyceride version that was introduced by Peter Huttenlocker back in the 70s, the early 70s. Um, there is no real difference between them in terms of efficacy. There are differences in side effects. And um, as Eric is probably gonna tell you in a few minutes, you can use combinations of the two um, to sort of offset some of those um, uh, um, side effects. In this study, they, I'm only, and I'm, I'm sort of shortchanging the investigators in that I really only have enough time to show one key, what I thought was a key diagram from each study. Um, so apologies to Zhang. Um, so in this decanoic acid model, they exposed, these were transfected receptor subunits. So they took xenophysocytes, transfected them with different receptor subunits. And the amper receptor combination showed, uh, when they looked at current, showed decreased current transmission with increasing doses of the decanoic acid, DA is decanoic acid. The interesting thing I thought was that you need to get sort of into the half millimolar um, to one millimolar range to see this in the oocytes. I'm not quite sure how that translates into um, intact tissue that's already expressing those receptors, but um, I, know that, uh, I know that on one of my grant applications I was um, criticized pretty strongly for having something that showed an effect at one millimolar, so that, that's a pretty high concentration. Mark your calendars now for the first ketogenic conference of 2017. It's the second annual conference on nutritional ketosis and metabolic therapeutics coming February 1st through the 4th, 2017 in Tampa, Florida. It is being held by Epigenics Foundation and the University of South Florida. They'll bring together a wide range of international experts speaking about the science and application of low carbohydrate nutrition and metabolic therapies for the treatment and prevention of cancer, neurological diseases, metabolic disorders, and for optimizing health and human performance. Some of the speakers include Dr. Thomas Seafried, Dr. Jeff Volick, Dr. Dominique Diagostino, Dr. Eric Westman, and many more. For more information about this event, go to metabolictherapeutics.com or visit the show notes section and click on the conference banner. Tickets are now available for the second annual conference on nutritional ketosis and metabolic therapeutics coming February 1st through the 4th, 2017. Another uh, paper looking at epigenetics 
this is rats exposed to pilocarpine, and then they start to develop seizures on their own. The ketogenic diet reversed a lot of the seizure-induced gene expression changes. You can sort of see the differences um, between the ketogenic diet. Uh, when the, so the pilocarpine was, they were all exposed to pilocarpine, the differences between uh, those that not treated and those that were treated with the ketogenic diet. And this was, they, they were, as far as I can tell from the paper, they were looking for uh, try to, to identify different components, different pathways that were involved in this, and it was more of a, a global phenomenon. So um, clearly something is happening, and the question is um, whether that's relevant to disease modification and ongoing epilepsy. Um, finally, hopefully I, I picked the right um, diagram from Zhang's paper. Looking at both ketogenic diet and beta-hydroxybutyrate that were reversing a cell death pathway, the, the sort of one of the final steps called the mitochondrial transition pore complex, and this is evidenced by um, increased mitochondrial calcium accumulation. You can see uh, mice that were, these are, are um, I think these are the KV1.1 mice, right? KV1.1 mice that have um, spontaneous seizures, and when you use um, the, compare the wild-type mice who don't have the mutation, the standard diet, those that had the mutation and were on the ketogenic diet showed no difference, and so the diet increased uh, the amount of calcium. So, um, and there's a whole raft of other data that I just don't have time to present uh, making that point. And so clearly there is some impact there. So that's individual diet components. What if we have a somewhat more nuanced look at, um, at looking at restricting, so the diets are restricting different types of calories, and if you increase one component, you have to decrease something else. Um, so we have, to, we have to obey some of the laws of the physical universe. Um, and feeding schedules are altered um, a little bit too in that you're restricting um, in the calorie restriction. So I don't have a lot of time to go through this. This is based on something that actually started off as um, the question of whether so fasting, the ketogenic diet was based on biochemical changes noted during fasting. And our lab has noted differences in acutely induced seizures between mice that were maintained on a ketogenic diet for two weeks versus those that were intermittently fasted. And I'm going to show you a little bit of that data in a minute. There's a reason I'm putting it off. But it did result in a, uh, a short case series that Eric and I um, published uh, a couple of years ago. Um, you know, it, I can't say that it was a grand slam, and these might, these we're on the ketogenic diet as well, so it was sort of a combination. Um, but certainly it led to um, some interesting ideas for future studies. So downstream metabolism pathways, this is where um, <clears throat> this is where I'd like to spend a few minutes. So I'm going to talk briefly about the mTOR pathway. It's a you know the, the major metabolism pathway in the cell. It's a, an important nutrient. Um, sensor um, and metabolism integrator. And just so I'm, I'm um, abbreviating, I'm skipping an awful lot of steps in here. Um, but the basic is that you have upstream regulation. So the um, complex mTORC1 um, is responsible for a lot of cell growth. And the upstream proteins are sort of a break on that overgrowth. And so patients who have tuberous sclerosis, who may have mutations either in TSC1 or TSC2, have different signs and symptoms of overgrowth. They have tumors, they have um, tubers, and um, patients, there's a syndrome involving mutations in P10 as well, which is upstream of that. And so um, because it's a master metabolism regulator, and there's work ongoing in my mentor's lab at the time, we said, well, so does the diet do anything with um, and you can inhibit it with rapamycin, that's the other point. Um, does the diet do anything in the mTOR pathway? So um, we had some interesting findings. This is a Western blot looking at, let me go back for a second. One way to measure mTOR activity is to look at it so it's a kinase. 
is to look at phosphorylation of different substrates. <clears throat> One of the more common ones is S6 kinase, there are others. Um, and so what we saw was that there was an inhibition of mTOR pathway activity in mice that were on the ketogenic diet, but not in mice that were intermittently fasted. And we actually had a grant under review at NIH when Mike Wong's paper was published with Sharon McDaniel um, showing the same thing. And it, you know, so much for the novelty of that one. <laughs> Lose a point on innovation there. Um, but what I want to show you is some of the differences between, oops, between the intermittent fasting mice and the ketogenic diet mice. So there are two seizure tests that I'm going to show you. These are acutely induced seizures. The first is the 6 hertz electroshock test. And basically the take home point is that mice, so this is the current that you apply and this is the percentage of mice that have seizures. These are focal um, seizures. So the percentage of mice, the current required to um, induce a seizure in a mouse treated with the diet was higher than it was for a control diet. Interestingly, if you were intermittent fasted, tested the day after a feed, um, those mice actually did worse. So that's a clear dissociation between the two in that test. We had additional data looking at um, mice that were um, subjected to canic acid, so they've been on the diet for two weeks. We inject them with canic acid, and these are behavioral seizure scores. <clears throat> you can see that the mice on the um, intermittent fasting, so a low score is good, the mice that were intermittently fasted had lower seizure scores than ones on the ketogenic diet, which is actually different than what the, um, Dr. No and their group in Korea showed. Uh, we, sh we actually have shown, and we've replicated this multiple times, that the ketogenic diet mice did worse. So, um, that, you know, it doesn't mean it's not a useful clinical intervention because some of the, you know, the drugs do that too, some of them, but um, you clearly um, see a dissociation here where the diet works in one model, fails in another, intermittent fasting failed in one model and did well in another. So, um, so we're of the uh, view that intermittent, that calorie restriction in the form of intermittent fasting is different than the ketogenic diet. So let's build on this pathway idea for just a minute, going back to that Western blot. So if indeed the ketogenic diet works by inhibiting the mTOR pathway, then you would expect that the mTOR, inhibiting the mTOR pathway pharmacologically then would lead to protection and seizure tests that are similar to the ketogenic diet. And so we tested this hypothesis using the 6 hertz test, which I've already shown you where the ketogenic diet works. And we tried seven different dosing schedules and seven different times, seven different doses. And we could not, for the life of us, come up with a scenario where the ketogenic diet actually worked in the 6 hertz test, which in our hands is the best test for um, ketogenic diet. So we also looked at um, maximal electroshock test where the diet does not work in our mice and showed that rapamycin actually did work. When you look at the um, canic acid test, the rapamycin, uh, the rapamycin works at the very end of the monitoring period. So we went back, this is the journey part, so we went back and looked at um, the pharmacology of the mTOR pathway. So L-leucine, the amino acid, is a known activator of that pathway. So it's like having the brake taken off. So you're turning up the mTOR, you'd expect that the seizures should get worse because that's what you see in the patients who have tuberous sclerosis. So we looked at L-leucine. It's highly abundant in mammals. It is a ketogenic amino acid. There's only two of them, and that's one of them. It is not a glucogenic amino acid. High doses had been shown um, back in the 90s to show some seizure efficacy in rats using PTZ and picotoxin, um, which are both GABA-A receptor um, antagonists. But remember that high doses are toxic in humans and rodents. There's something called maple syrup urine disease or branched-chain ketoaciduria. Um, 
branch chain amino acid area. And then um, the other thing is there's a potential for a lot of off-target effects because leucine affects transporter, endocrine effects, and the pharmacology isn't really that well understood. So it turns out that L-leucine protected against seizures, and this is the canic acid test. The mice <clears throat> had been injected three hours prior to this test, and we showed that it worked in a dose-dependent fashion. It also worked in the 6 hertz test. But this is really unexpected. L-leucine should make these seizures worse, not better. So we started looking for an active ingredient in our supplies of L-leucine, which we got from Sigma. And you know, could it be a transporter effect? Could it be a contaminant effect? D-leucine, the D enantiomer, is found in plants, gut bacteria, and beer. It's present in the brain, including in the hippocampus. We don't know what it does in mammals, why it's there. Interestingly, no, none other than Dr. Emden published a paper in 1906 showing that D-leucine produced ketone bodies more effectively in liver preparations than L-leucine did, although I have to say that we did not see elevated ketone um, beta-hydroxybutyrate levels in, with either D or L-leucine. We did not measure tissue levels. But it's never been studied in epilepsy, so all amino acids, not all amino acids are created equal. This is nice of pure ad. Okay, so what we showed is that D-leucine worked in the pre-administration test, but what I really want to show you is the post-test. So these are mice that were exposed. Again, seizure score high is bad, low is good. And these are mice where we administered canic acid at time zero, and then we waited for 20 minutes, and then administered the D-leucine or diazepam. We did a comparison with diazepam um, and vehicle. So the vehicle treated mice just, these are again behavioral seizures, just kept having a ton of seizures. Mice that were treated with the D-leucine returned back to at least a behavioral baseline, which was sort of, you know, exploring the cage and playing with their cage mates. Mice treated with diazepam over this three-hour period did not return to a behavioral baseline. So one major point that all of us, I think, are making is that metabolism can be altered through different pathways to protect against seizures. We've discussed the diet, intermittent fasting. We have not discussed 2-deoxyglucose, but it's come up. Fructose 1,6-bisphosphate. Janet Stringer studied a while back, the low glycemic index treatment. Rapamycin clearly works in models where mTOR activity is elevated. Um, some of those are genetic models, some of those are not. Uh, but it doesn't work in everything, but you wouldn't expect it to. And then anaplerotic substrates is a whole other area um, of interest uh, for Karen Borges and her group in Australia. So coming back to the slide where I kind of started, metabolism changes precede epileptiform activity, but they also persist. And so, you know, you had these changes um, initially, but then things keep, you know, the, the changes keep going on. So there was initial increase in oxidative phosphorylation, then a decrease in oxidative phosphorylation. And so um, some other interesting data that they showed in this paper is the absence of the so-called metabolic failure and persistently abnormally firing tissue. So metabolism is clearly a target. We don't know what would happen if you were to give um, ketogenic substrates in this culture medium. We don't know what would happen if you were to give it at this time point versus this time point. There's a lot of speculation about whether you'd be altering the, the relative activities of oxidative phosphorylation and glycolysis. We could you know, go on for hours about that. So just to summarize, ketogenic substrates likely have multiple mechanisms for both acute and chronic effects. Multiple mechanisms, and, and Zhang addressed this earlier today in his talk. And, but I, I would also lobby for um, the point that understanding early events is critical for acute seizure inhibition. <clears throat> when we talk about disease modification, I think we still need a little bit of clarification for all of the metabolism and nutrient-based treatments. The mechanism-based studies and relevant models hopefully 
uh, will shed some light on this. It's a little bit controversial. So, um, so this is my uh, thank you slide for my funding sources, my mentor for my K08, Marie Hardwick, my technician, Poland Santos. Um, <clears throat> some of these initial studies were uh, sort of thought about a little bit when I was in Mike Rogowski's lab with the help of Maciej Gossier and Rafal Kaminsky, and my clinical colleagues, Patty Vining, Eric Kossoff, who's about to talk with you, Jim Rubenstein, and obviously our patients and their families. So, we made it. Take questions for a few minutes. I'm going to take them now because I've actually got to hop on a plane. Yes? I come to think of the ketogenic diet as we use in diabetes and obesity as an elimination diet. An elimination of gluten, gluten, gluten free, an elimination of artificial dyes that are anything that the food supply artificially is basically eliminated. And it does it really well. What evidence, I didn't see it, anything on the first slide to show that it might just be the elimination of carbohydrate in the diet <clears throat> causing the improvement in the seizure. What evidence is there, in the, or clinically or scientifically, that it's, it's just that you stop the carbohydrate input? So, um, so it's a tough question when you talk about a diet because you have to change two things at once. You can't just change one. So there has been some discussion about a pro high protein diet instead of going with high fat, going with high protein. And it's not clear that the high protein diet is as efficacious as the, so it actually turns out to become, and you, the metabolism guys know this better than I do, in order to induce ketosis, you have to have your protein has to be below a certain level. Um, <clears throat> but um, it's not clear that just altering protein is enough. No, 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 it's just the so, so the right, but but so the problem is you have to replace it with something, right? So if you take, oh, you don't. You don't have to eat carbohydrate. You don't, but if you're going to maintain an isocaloric diet. Okay, so you're so the experimental models that you're using don't really reflect the the experience that. The, So that's just eliminated all of the the epileptogenic factors in the diet. Yeah. And so I think this is just classic. You're doing everything right. It seems fantastic, but but the if you reintroduce carbohydrate in these models, do seizures come back? So I'll tell you a story about a patient, two patients that were published in a paper in uh, 1971 by Peter Huttenlocker, where he had patients on the medium chain triglyceride diet and then put them back, he did glucose infusions while they, were, while they had the EEG running. And so 45 minutes later, one of the patients started showing just bizarre epileptiform activity and an hour and a half later for the other patient. So that's, I think in my, in my mind, that's the cleanest um, proof of principle that reintroducing glucose was dextrose, reversed the effects, the protective effects of the diet. I mean, there are other ways to do this, but those patients were on the, on the MCT diet, and then he did a dextrose infusion. I don't know that you really answered my question, but the... Um... So they were controlled on the MCT diet, and you asked what happens when you reintroduce carbohydrates. And so 45 minutes, hour and a half after the dextrose infusion, their EEGs went from being clean to basically status epilepticus. 
So you're trying to find out why the carbs are causing, no you're not. <laughs> no, I, I will say I was trying to answer your question about what happens if you reintroduce the carbohydrate? Maybe I misunderstood your question. No, absolutely. No, but in your whole talk, you didn't talk about that. Although it was on the trip. I only had so much time to do it. <laughs> I had half an hour to cover. I mean, we, so, so another way to do this would be to look at 2-deoxyglucose, which I didn't have time to discuss. Um, I mean, there's, so I can only do so much in half an hour, so, yeah. If I could expand, perhaps, on Derek's point. Uh, I've seen some work in which mice are very sensitive to the amount of protein in the diet. Uh, and so when you were over 15% protein, 85 fat, uh, you actually have a suppression of ketone production, increased gluconeogenesis. Right. So it's really only when you're at about 10% protein that you're actually producing ketones in the mice. Uh, and I've never actually distinguished between potential carbohydrate versus ketones actually having an effect here. So do you actually measure the ketones in your, in your mice? Yeah. And what was the percent of protein in that? So, um, so this is important because we have some new data that we're, we're still working on the results. So one of um, uh, Sammy Harik, so some of the neurologists in the crowd may know who he is, sort of pigeonholed me at a meeting probably about 10 years ago now and said, how do you know it's not the protein? So the standard rodent chow that I showed you has 24% protein. The ketogenic diet is 8%. So we have a diet, so we spend a lot of time talking with the research diet folks about how to make a control, isocaloric control diet. So we have an 8% carbohydrate-laden diet, and the results on the six hertz test are the same as it was for the higher protein. 8% protein? 8% protein, sorry. So, so you're comparing, so both the ketogenic and the, the control diet have 8% protein, and so we vary the carb and the fat. So, so the results were similar to what we saw before, and now we're trying to work out some of the, part of the problem is with the, so we're also, the question, another question is, what happens the day after a fast? So the intermittent fasting data I showed you are the day after a feed, what happens the day after a fast? So, yeah, it's, it's and we're crunching the data now. Do you measure ketones? We do, yeah, we do, so we do it on the day of testing. Um, so we get levels in the roughly two to four range, and the control mice, are in the about 0.1 to 0.3 range. Coming up next time on the Living La Vida Low Carb Show, we'll have yet another lecture from the Metabolic Therapeutics Conference featuring Stephanie Sierlone. Get show notes for today's episode at theliveinlowcarbshow.com. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review at iTunes. Thanks for listening to the Livin' La Vida Low Carb Show. We'll see you next time. Disc of Light. <laughs>